0: Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 6 this evening. And we're going to be reading from verse 5 through to verse 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for if you forgive men when they sin against you your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins.
1: Um, If we haven't met, I'm Simon, one of the ministers here. And uh, we're spending uh, three weeks in this Lord's Prayer. Uh, Last week, this week, next week. And uh, last week, we made it all the way through the first four words. So we're going to speed things up a little bit tonight. Um, But we need to keep those first four words in place. Our Father in heaven simultaneously our loving intimate parent and our glorious all-powerful god and lord if we if we can hold those two things together then then we will pray to him if we lose one of those we probably won't we said last week uh, from the context uh, here in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 that the lord's prayer is meant to teach us to pray and i take it that we all need that i don't think i've ever met uh, a christian no matter uh, how long they've they've been a christian who said um I'm satisfied with my prayer life. I think I pray very consistently and very well, thank you very much. I've never met anyone who said that. Um, all of us can grow to be uh, more prayerful, to pray more biblically. Some of us, I guess, probably have a, a barely functioning prayer life. And that is a worry. Because uh, praying is one of the, the vital signs of having a relationship with God. So for some of us, this series may be emergency surgery. Uh, If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at the moment, maybe you wonder, what what would it be like to pray? What sort of things would would I say and why? So let's ask Jesus for his help as we get deeper into the content of this prayer that he gave us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to learn to pray. We long for that. So thank you that this is recorded for us in the Bible. Thank you that you caused your first disciples to write down what you taught them. Please would this prayer, the Lord's Prayer that you gave us, sink deep into our hearts. We want to be able to do more than just recite it, valuable as that is. We want to know it. We want to understand it. We want to pray it from the heart and for it to shape all of our prayers. So please, Father, would you teach us tonight to pray? Amen. When we get to the content of the Lord's Prayer, we find that it is... Revolutionary. You might have seen uh, in the news this summer, uh, Roy Costner IV of uh, South Carolina went to give his high school graduation speech. And instead of reading from his script that he'd submitted for approval to, uh, by a teacher, he tore up that script and prayed the Lord's Prayer. And he got applause and cheers from the audience that was there and stinging criticism from the authorities because uh, they'd recently banned the prayer from graduation ceremonies uh, under pressure from secularist campaigning groups. And uh, those groups were furious at Roy Costner IV. But a, a, a school spokesman spoke to the press uh, with a bit of a smile on his face. Uh, Roy is a graduate now. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it, even if we wanted to. Um, <laughs> But the content of the Lord's Prayer has a revolution within it of a different, much more profound kind. And let me show you what I mean. Uh, let's put the Lord's Prayer up on screen. Here it is. Uh, after our, our Father in Heaven, the first line. Uh, at first glance, it just looks like a, a jumbled set of petitions. Six in total. Six requests. But let me just highlight some words. Here's the first half. Can you see that? Your, your your. The word your dominates the first half of the prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Those are the ones we're looking at tonight, the first half of the prayer. And then let's highlight the words in the, the second half. You see that? The word your disappears and lets us and our and we Dominates all of the the second half. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's that's next week's section. It's a really clear pattern, isn't it? very clear division between the first and the second parts of this prayer. And as I've put it on your uh, handout, uh, we pray our Father's priorities first. Why is that? Why does why is that the case in the Lord's Prayer? Why do we pray these things that are are, our Father's priorities? Because there's lots of prayers in the Bible that don't do that. There are prayers that pray petitions first uh, and request things of God first. Our prayers don't always have to be this way around. But the Lord's Prayer suggests it is a good, even a normal thing to do to begin with these priorities of our Father. And let me say, that is radical. It is a revolution of the heart. It doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, left to ourselves, our prayers would start with ourselves and finish with ourselves and, and be about ourselves pretty much all the way through, and God's purposes would not get much of a look in. Uh, back in 2002, an American pastor called uh, Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. You might have come across it. Uh, it's been a bestseller for the last decade or so, and there are, there are great things about it and some less great things about it. But the first paragraph of the book is strikingly brilliant. If you read the cover of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and you wonder what that purpose is, you turn the first page and then you read this. In capital letters, it's not about you. And Warren goes on, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet... You must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That is because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what What do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? But Warren says, focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. You must begin with God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. It is only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, and our destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. Now that is exactly right. We make no sense of our lives or our needs or problems or the struggles or the opportunities of our life until we see that it all starts with our Father in heaven. His priorities come first, and then they make sense of everything else. So our prayers need to reflect that, whether we spend time at the beginning going through these things or not. Uh, If our prayers are shaped by God's priorities, everything else will be in the right perspective. It's not wrong to ask for things, to bring our needs before God. The second half of the prayer does that. 1 Peter 5 tells us to cast all of our anxieties onto onto our Father because he cares for us. Uh, So don't not do that. We'll talk about that next week. But if we're not shaped by our Father's priorities, uh, we could end up asking for all sorts of wrong things. Even if we ask for some of the right things, we probably ask for the wrong reasons, Uh, selfish longings rather than godly longings. So Jesus here gives us a summary of our Father's priorities in this first half of the prayer. His name, his kingdom, and his will. All my summaries on the handout of what those things mean. His honor, his reign, and his purposes. Very, very simple phrases in this original prayer, perfect for memorizing. In the original language, the word order is rhythmically uh, the same in each line in a way that sadly doesn't translate properly into English it's something like hallowed be your name come be your kingdom done be your will it doesn't work in English sadly but it's designed to be remembered to just stick in our heads so that we can pray it so let's look at our father's priorities in turn so that they shape our prayers first hallowed be your name Hallowed be your name. Now, that's a confusing statement all round, really, isn't it? Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? We need to figure out uh, what it means to talk about God's name, and we need to work out what hallowed means. Um, So uh, first, God's name. What is that about? In British society, we're slightly hampered in this because nowadays we we tend to choose names uh, just because we like them. Uh, Tree and I chose chose our children's names, Joel and Erin, pretty much because we like them. Um... Uh, although it is amazing when you go through books of babies' names and their meanings, uh, what you discover. Um, did you know that Calvin means little bald one? <laughs> I'm going to risk offending people now. Portia means pig. Uh, Barbara means strange foreigner. And um, uh, I hope there are some Scots in I can see yet, Cameron. Do you know what your name means? <laughs> Wonky nose. Sorry, mate. Uh, <laughs> Campbell means wonky mouth. Kennedy means ugly head. So there you go. Uh, Scottish names are brilliant. Um, but in many cultures, uh, including the, the, the Middle East in Jesus' day, names were deeply, deeply significant. Uh, your name was, was not just a, a, an identity marker. But it was a reflection of your character, your reputation. And we still talk a little bit like that in today's society. We say that a person or a company that becomes famous has made a name for themselves. A good name or a bad name. And we buy something from an expensive brand and we say we're paying for the name. In other words, the reputation of that manufacturer. So God's name is all about his reputation, how he is known In the Bible, he reveals many names for himself. Uh, They're always descriptive of who he is. For example, uh, Elohim, meaning God. El Shaddai, meaning Almighty God. Adonai, meaning my Lord or my Master. That's the one translated as Lord with lowercase letters in our uh, Bibles in English. But there's a a really significant revelation of God's name uh, near the beginning of the Bible in, in Exodus chapter 3. Where God announces himself to Moses as, I am who I am. A name that he announces to Moses, I am who I am. Meaning, the self-sufficient one, the incomparable one, the ever-consistent one, the limitless one, with no beginning or end. And as the Bible goes on, that gets shortened to just I am. Uh, Or Yahweh in Hebrew. Or Jehovah in Latin. And then in our English Bibles, Lord in capital letters, that's what that means. When you see Lord in capital letters, it's that name of God. I am who I am. And this, it seems, is God's, uh, in a sense, most personal name, revealing him as the the promise-keeping rescuer of his people. And this personal name of God, as you follow through the Bible, gets attached to all sorts of other descriptive words. Uh, There was a a youth song in the youth group at my parents' church, which I won't sing, but uh went a bit like this, containing lots of names of God. Maybe some of you have come across it. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Jehovah Rophe, God heals. Jehovah Makedesh, God who sanctifies. Jehovah Nissi, God is my banner. Jehovah Rohi, God my shepherd. Jehovah Shalom, God is peace. Jehovah Tzidkenu, God our righteousness. Jehovah Shammah, God is there. So the Bible fills out God's name with richer and richer and richer detail as you read it. And it is the great privilege of God's people to know him, to know his name. Even to be called by his name. In 2 Chronicles 7, God calls his people, my people who are called by my name. Now That is a huge thing. Kate Middleton uh, gained the privilege of being able to be called Kate Windsor uh, last year, and all the privileges associated with that illustrious name. But that is nothing compared to the privilege that we, God's people, have of being called by his name. But then finally, when Jesus comes, he fully reveals God. In John 17, he says to the Father, literally, I have made your name known to them. In Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection, God has perfectly and fully and finally demonstrated his character for all of us to see. And so the name of Jesus becomes hugely significant in the rest of the New Testament. The name by which we're saved. The name in which Christians are sent to all nations with the good news of him. So in all those ways, God's name stands for his character, his reputation. Then second question, what does it mean for it to be hallowed? Nothing to do with Harry Potter. Put your mind put the elder wand, the resurrection stone and the cloak of invisibility out of your head. Uh hallowed means essentially to honour something as holy. Where holy means special or set apart. We just had Halloween. The Eve of All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. Saints or hallowed ones in the Bible uh, describes uh, all Christians. But the word means people that have been made holy, set apart, and are considered holy. Or think of uh, the only other modern use of the word hallowed, the hallowed turf. Uh, there's normal turf all over the place, in people's gardens and parks um, and farms. But the hallowed turf is a special place, set apart from normal turf. Uh, football grounds uh, are often revered places, you know, treated with awe and honor and respect. That is something of it. Hallowed be your name means this, longing for our Father to be honored as holy to be known for who he truly is, to be held in the highest regard across the world as uniquely worthy of praise and devotion and worship. So what's that going to mean for us? Uh, What are we actually praying for practically when we say, hallowed be your name? Well, let's talk about us first and then the rest of the world. It starts with us. First, our thoughts and whether we honour God as holy in our own hearts and then it has implications for how we speak. Uh, interestingly, the, the the one notorious sin of Moses in the Bible is a failure to hallow God. It's literally how Deuteronomy 32 describes it. God miraculously brings water out of a rock to feed God's people. And Moses, in a in a sort of fit of frustration, tells the people, we brought water out of the rock, me and Aaron did it. And God is deeply distressed that Moses could be so unconcerned about honoring God in that situation let's ground that in in some of the things we're talking about tonight as you've been hearing we're going to go to three services on a Sunday here at CCM what if as we long and pray for what if God grows the congregations here over the coming months and years we'd love that We, we pray that he'll do that if he does how will you and I talk about that Will you slip into saying, well, we did this, we did that, we made this change, and we made this decision, and so we grew the church? That would be dangerously like the sin of Moses in not hallowing God's name. Let's give the Lord all the honor for everything and anything that he does amongst us. Hallowing his name begins with us in the hearts and conversations of his people. It also means longing for others across the world to hallow his name. In other words, um, that people who don't yet know God would come to see him as he truly is, come to know him and honor him. So I hope that uh, you are distressed whenever your father is slandered and lied about in public. And whenever his reputation is publicly dragged through the mud, I, I hope that distresses you. Conversely, I hope you're thrilled whenever he's well represented in public, whenever somebody says something in the media that is true and glorious about our God. Maybe it should distress us more than it sometimes does when people take God's name in vain. They spit the names of Jesus and God as, as swear words. I'm not saying we should always leap in and, and correct and criticize whenever that happens. That would probably be unhelpful in a lot of cases. But don't just let it become normal and wash over you as if it doesn't matter. My wife, Tree, once developed a habit of uh, whenever her colleague in, a, uh, in her workplace said, uh, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, she'd sort of give them a smile and say, he's listening. <laughs> you could try that. Hallowed be your name. This is uh, the beginning of the revolution in this prayer. We're not praying, hallowed be my name. We're not praying, let me have a good reputation, let me be esteemed and honoured as holy. That would be the instinct of our hearts to say that. But Jesus teaches us to say, not my name, Lord, your name. Lord, we long for your name to be hallowed in our hearts, in our speech, in other people's hearts and lives. And then the second request builds on the first. Hallowed be your name and then your kingdom come. This prayer is about our father's reign as king, and it follows logically on uh, from wanting to see God honored, Uh, because honoring God will involve recognizing him as the king of the universe whose kingdom we long for. Now, we've got to be careful here. Uh, the Bible speaks of God's kingdom in a couple of different senses. In one sense, God already is king. He always has been. He always will be. Uh, the sovereign over the universe whose kingdom uh, endures from age to age, who cannot be thwarted, who never has been and never will be successfully opposed, whose purposes will always be accomplished just as he intends. That is all true. But that's not the, uh, the kind of kingdom... Uh, that's being spoken of here there's another way that the Bible speaks of God's kingdom which is in view here and when you read Matthew's gospel uh, you pick it up all the way through in Matthew's gospel uh, it begins with a a grand announcement from uh, John the Baptist and then Jesus himself who both say repent for the kingdom of heaven is near now that is not just a a factual announcement God is already king so uh, deal with it it's not a geographical announcement. The kingdom of heaven is near. Go to the next town. You'll find it. Uh, it's a traveling roadshow that's on its way to you. Uh, this is an invitation. The kingdom is near, meaning it's available, mainly because the king himself had arrived. Uh, the invitation is to repent. In other words, to turn and join the kingdom of Jesus rather than working against it. So when Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's offering the amnesty of all amnesties, if I can put it that way. Imagine a a good and great and powerful king on the verge of destroying all his enemies who've engaged in a, a bitter and violent war of rebellion. Reaching out to them and saying, I could bring you to a swift and terrible end. And if you keep going the way you are, that is what will happen. I will have to do that. But don't stay in rebellion. I offer you full, free forgiveness. Despite all of your crimes against my kingdom, turn, repent, come to me, and then you're going to be welcomed with open arms. That is Jesus' kingdom offer, his invitation. Turn to me as your king, and I'll take you in. No matter what you've done. No matter how bitterly you've opposed me, Jesus says, because of my death on the cross, you can come into my glorious kingdom free and forgiven. Now make no mistake, that is a fantastic offer. You read on in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 13, Jesus says, finding the kingdom of God is like finding a pearl of great price or a hidden treasure that you would sell absolutely everything you have to get hold of. Entering a kingdom so wonderful as Jesus is uh, means that nothing else compares. There's no need for a sort of reluctant submission to him. But even so, as you read on in Matthew, not everybody reacts positively. In Matthew 13, Jesus says the kingdom's like a harvest where there are weeds as well as crops to sort through. Like a catch of fish where some have to be discarded alongside those that are kept. And you continue reading and you see why the reaction is so divided in chapters 18 and 19. In order to enter the kingdom, you have to humble yourself like a little child dependent on your heavenly Father's love and forgiveness. It's always painful and difficult to repent, to turn around, to admit that you're wrong and go a different way. And Jesus says the proud and the wealthy find it particularly hard. And he condemns the religious leaders of his day in chapter 23 because their pride was preventing others from entering the kingdom. But nevertheless, despite that uh, divided reaction, Jesus says the kingdom will grow chapter 13 it's like yeast starting uh, something invisibly tiny and growing to fill the whole thing uh the whole dough uh, like a mustard seed vanishingly small that grows to an immense size and then chapter 8 lets us glimpse the end of the whole process it'll be like a great heavenly feast where God's people sit and celebrate with abraham and isaac and jacob it'll be chapter 25 says uh, a great blessing A fantastic inheritance planned and given by the Father from before the creation of the world. That is the message of the kingdom that Jesus is sending out to all the world. So do you see what it means to say, your kingdom come? It means longing for that future day when the kingdom will be fully realized. And longing for the kingdom to advance here and now as more and more people repent. More and more people turn to Jesus and enter his kingdom. Now, it's worth, um, at this point, pausing to say there's there's a lot of confused talk about the kingdom of God today. Uh, political and social movements, uh, even Christian ones, often try to equate the kingdom of God with various kinds of social action. It's easy to to slip into thinking that way when you see good social change healing the sick, relieving poverty, freeing the oppressed, and so on, Uh, and and begin to think that that in itself, those things in themselves, are the coming of God's kingdom. That is not the case. Those things in themselves are not the kingdom. That is a dangerous mistake. Let me try and explain why. Um, Jesus himself went around healing the sick, relieving poverty, freeing the oppressed. But that was not how people entered the kingdom, Uh, Jesus had wonderful compassion, but he didn't just want the people he healed to walk away happy. He wanted them to ask, who is this? This is the Christ. This is the king. I must follow him. I must enter his kingdom. Uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, but then he said to them, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the, the social action, if we can put it that way, the feeding of the people who needed food was, was not the kingdom, was not them entering the kingdom. You only enter the kingdom by repenting, turning to Jesus as king. Now look, social concern is a good thing. Please don't mishear me on that. It's a good thing in and of itself. If we're kingdom people, Matthew 25 says that we will be those who feed the hungry, relieve poverty, free the oppressed. Those are always good things to do. And if we follow our master, we're going to do them. But don't be naive about this. Uh, Social change without spiritual change is not an advance of God's kingdom. And that's a challenge for us, I think. Um, Can we, when appropriate, live out our social concern in a way that points people to Jesus? That is ready to issue that kingdom invitation. Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So when we pray, your kingdom come, let's mean what Jesus means by it. For some here, that might it might mean adjusting your thinking a little bit. Uh, But I take it we want to mean what Jesus means when we talk about his kingdom. Can you pray something like this? Lord, I, I long to see more and more people bowing the knee to King Jesus. Starting with me, may your kingdom come in my life as I continue to repent and trust you. That's a dangerous and transforming prayer to pray. May your kingdom come in our church as we follow King Jesus together. May we proclaim the good news of the kingdom to those around us, even as we show people the social love and compassion which Jesus modeled and called us to. May your kingdom come in the world around us as people hear the good news and come to Jesus in repentance and faith until we reach that glorious feast when the kingdom will have come in all of its fullness. So the revolution continues with this second request. It is not, let my kingdom come. It is not my domain, my influence, my little empire that I'm praying for. That would be our instinct. That's what our hearts would tell us to do. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, not my kingdom, but yours. And then finally, the third request, your will be done. Think about uh, God's purposes. Again, the flow is is very, very logical. As God's kingdom comes, as more and more people bow the knee to King Jesus, it results in his will being done more and more. And again, there's two ways the Bible speaks of God's will. In one sense, his will is always done. Uh, His plans are always accomplished. Even evil works out ultimately for good in his plan. But here the prayer is for uh, God's will to be done on earth, As it is in heaven, in heaven, biblically, we read of countless angels doing God's bidding, serving God joyfully, carrying out his will. But the earth that we live on is not like that. Uh, In our world, God's kingdom is challenged. His will is very often not carried out by you, by me, by everybody in the world, uh, but most especially by those who continue to reject God's rule. And God really cares about his will being done. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, "Look, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. In chapter 12, he says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. In other words, people in the kingdom are marked by longing to do the Father's will. Longing to do his will. This is not a a shrug of resignation. Oh, well, I suppose I should do what God wants. Sometimes we slip into a frame of mind where we we think God's will is probably going to be unpleasant. We feel like a bit of a martyr for praying, your will be done. As if we're condemning ourselves to a life of dullness and tragedy. Uh, That misses the mark by a million miles. Imagine for a moment that you could live for just a week perfectly doing God's will in every single situation, in what you do, what you say, what you think. How would that transform you? How would that transform your relationships? How would that transform your conversations, your work, your rest, your state of mind by the end of the week? hello. If you had a week like that, where you were able to perfectly do God's will every single moment in your head, in your mouth, in everything you did, that would be the best week of your life, whatever else was going on. Sadly, weeks like that are on hold for now, until we're in the final feast in heaven. Uh, But that is one of the reasons the kingdom is such a precious thing to take hold of. That is going to be glorious. Doing God's will is a glorious thing, not a reluctant, drudging thing. And Jesus himself, well, he led the way on this. Think of him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Three times he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Three times he prayed that and then went to the cross in order to fulfill his father's will. It was the most horrific thing he could ever experience. And yet... We're told in the book of Hebrews that uh, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. The joy of winning forgiveness for people like you and me. The joy of being able to invite us into his kingdom and to welcome us as forgiven rebels. So when we pray, your will be done, it's, uh, it's like that prayer of Jesus in, in Gethsemane. We're following his example. It is a prayer of submission to our Father, but joyfully so. And it's not just submission, it's determination as well. Committing ourselves to God's purposes, planning to be part of the answer to our own prayers as we work out God's will in our our lives. So these three things are uh, parts of this revolution in the Lord's Prayer, all addressed to our Father. Hallowed be your name, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. May your will be done, not mine. So let me ask you, as we close, do your prayers contain sentiments like that? Uh, Do words like these uh, take up quite a lot of time in your prayers? It's the first half of the Lord's Prayer. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Do you spend time praying these things to your Father? These prayers are radical and contrary to our, our selfish instincts. It might be that in your heart there's a powerful aversion to saying things like this. Almost a revulsion. You sort of read those petitions in the Lord Prayer and you think, how could I say unreservedly turn myself over to Jesus? But ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Can you begin to see how joining Jesus' kingdom or staying in Jesus' kingdom is a treasure of unimaginable value? Nothing you have or could have could compare with that. Can you see the alternative of staying in rebellion against the kingdom of God is unthinkable in its consequences. Maybe if you're struggling to be able to express these prayers for yourself, spend some time reading Matthew's gospel for yourself. Look at Jesus. Look at the kingdom for yourself and see if you can begin to pray these things for yourself. Make these words your own and see if you can increasingly uh, take hold of them. And if you already have a desire, maybe a a burning desire within you for your Father's honour and his reign and his purposes, then we'll give thanks for that. Give thanks. And keep praying this prayer. And ask for a greater desire. Ask for God to shape you more and more with these kinds of godly longings. Only then, with this revolution underway, with our Father's priorities first, are we going to be ready to pray requests like the second half of the Lord's Prayer does. Um, We'll be ready for that. We'll pray them for the right reasons. We'll we'll ask for the right things if these things are in place. Let me finish with a prayer that uh, the great uh, preacher, John Wesley, adapted from an older one back in uh, 1755, which uh, brilliantly expresses this revolution of the heart in this prayer. It's on the screen. Uh, I'll pray through it, and then I'll leave a moment for you to echo the words in your own heart as you respond to the Lord's Prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whomever you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, raised up for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal and now o glorious and blessed god father son and holy spirit you are mine and i am yours so be it amen let's just take a moment to reflect on that Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please, our loving and sovereign Father, forgive us when our priorities are a million miles away from those things, when we're wrapped up in our, our own purposes, trying to build our own little kingdoms, trying to seek our own name and reputation in the world. Forgive us, Father. Please, would this prayer teach us uh, not just how to pray, but how to have our lives shaped by these glorious, godly longings. And we pray that that would shape our prayers, shape our responses to you, shape what we ask for, what we desire, what we seek in this world. So please, Lord, uh, where there is selfishness in our hearts, would this prayer cause a revolution? so that you are first. In Jesus' name, amen.